Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hi, this is With Friends Like These, and I am Anna Marie Cox. We have two guests today. Our second guest is Sheila Bynum-Coleman. She is a 2019 candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates 66th District seat. There are a few interesting things about her, lots of interesting things about her. She's running against Speaker Kirk Cox, a Republican elected to the House in 1990 and in no way a relative of mine. As far as I know, I disown him if he is a relative. She has a fascinating story and very personal reasons for running for office. So stay tuned for that. And I know you're going to want to hear from our first guest. Crooked media completists and fans of viral campaign ads will recognize him. He is the star of a Senate spot where he put together a rifle blindfolded. He is Jason Kander, the former Secretary of State for Missouri and host of Crooked Media's Majority 54. He's also the founder of Let America Vote, and he's now leading the nationwide expansion of the Veterans Community Project, which provides compact houses. I was also told to I can say tiny homes, but that sounds weird, to end veteran homelessness. He's filling in one of the show's few straight, liberal, cis, white dude spots. And he's doing that because he's more than just an advocate for mental health and veterans issues. He represents one of the most public and radical decisions to prioritize self-care that I've ever seen, probably you've ever seen. Even after he lost that Senate campaign, he was one of the rising stars in the Democratic Party, rumored to be a possible presidential candidate. He had lots of options ahead of him. And what he chose to do was to get treatment for PTSD. Coming right up, Jason Kander. Jason, welcome to the show. Good to finally be on. I know we've talked about it for a while. Well, you know, as a straight, cis, liberal, white guy with a podcast, I mean, you are an underrepresented minority. So you had to to open up a spot for you. Yeah. No, no, I didn't didn't mean to sound like I'd been campaigning for it. I felt like we both kept meaning to make it happen. (laughs) No, we meant meaning to have it happen. Although it is actually, I should point out, so we do have an informal ban on straight liberal cis white guys oh, I didn't know on the that. show. Um, but it's more like it's more like a rule of thumb. Hmm, um, like and we do guideline. it just means we someone has to meet a high bar. It has oh. to meet a high bar well, in order I, I, uh, in order to come in. I'm I'm glad to have met the bar. Yes, be flattered. It's okay. I am. Um, and it means absolutely. you have something important to talk about. 
And you have something important to talk about. And I have some uncomfortable things to talk about. I think, so the the ban, informal rule, whatever it is, bar, started out as a joke and then became kind of serious. But then I started thinking about why it is we have it. And this gets back to you. Trust me. Um, Part of it is just diversity, of course. Um, And then part of it has to do with the fact that people in that demographic um, tend to be pretty comfortable. And the show is a lot about being uncomfortable, right? And that is why you are here, is I think that you've kind of stepped into a place where you've tried to confront some things that people are uncomfortable talking about. And I want you to talk about them more, if you don't mind. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. I, uh, I, I'm starting to get kind of good at it because I, I feel like it's an oh. important role for me to, to play uh, for others. So if people don't know, do you want to tell the story in your own words about sort of how you came to, to be someone talking about stuff that <laughs> other people don't want to talk about? Uh, sure. So um, I am a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I served there as a military intelligence officer in the Army. Uh, 06, 07, um, came home, uh, among other career pursuits, got into politics, sort of moved up the ranks uh, in, in that world, um, was a statewide elected official here in Missouri, and uh, ran for the U.S. Senate very, very uh, nearly won in a, in a state and on a day that uh, Trump actually carried my state by 19. Um, and then, uh, you know, did other things, started a, a campaign against voter suppression, did a lot of TV, had a podcast, wrote a book, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, all through that, I was um, denying to myself the idea that the symptoms that I was uh, hiding, from, well, not hiding from myself, suffering and then hiding from the world and deluding myself about, you know, denying to myself the fact that they were post-traumatic stress from my deployment to Afghanistan. And um, just had different ways of combating it. A lot of it was just trying to outrun it, you know, staying incredibly busy with my career. Uh, and it just got worse and worse, everything from um, hypervigilance to just enormous levels of stress to uh, constant nightmares, um, depression, emotional numbness. I could go through the whole list, but basically the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. <laughs> and uh, right. and somebody once said um, that either you deal with your trauma or your trauma deals with you. And that's basically what happened with me. I, I just, it came to a head. I was actually, uh, at first I was, I was going to run for president in 2020 and, um, and just knew something was not right and decided I would go, you know, come back home here to Kansas City and run for mayor and go get help at the VA. Um, I did start a mayoral campaign. Um, I did not uh, go get help at the VA. And um, and the mayoral campaign was going extremely well. We were headed toward, I think, certain victory. Um, but it just got worse and worse until um, I became, my suicidal thoughts became much more frequent. And uh, it scared me. And so in October of 2018, I stepped back from public life to um, get treatment at the VA for post-traumatic stress. So I went to weekly therapy for uh, about about seven months, um, and uh, and now look at me. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm and now I'm doing extremely well. <laughs> um, no, it, it made an enormous difference. It it, it uh, changed my life, and I'm really glad I did it. And um, now I'm actually uh, working as the uh, I, I'm running the national expansion of an organization that helped me. Uh, it's called Veterans Community Project. Uh, it's based here in Kansas City. 
So, and then I came here to talk to you. That's my life story. <laughs> I so know I guess that you podcast have many... over. I, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it was all very succinct and well told and we can be done. Um, I, I want to rewind a little bit. It did seem sudden, of course, to people who don't know you, people who follow you on Twitter, people who might see you on the media. It was like, oh, whoa, you know, wow, he's just taking a sudden step back. Um, I have some feelings of identification with that because when I hit bottom, I know it seemed like to a lot of people that I had been doing fine. Um, I was very high functioning until I wasn't. Mm. And I, I feel like that's what I'm sort of hearing from you. Yeah. There is this weird thing that happens if you have been trained over your life, and it sounds like maybe this is you, to present a really good front and to be rewarded for that good front, right? To be an overachiever and and feel like, okay, everything is fine. I'm getting all these kudos. That means I must be okay, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That things were not okay. Yeah, it's sort of that thing where you go, well, objectively, everything is great. It's really, for me, it was a combination of two things. Um, it's It's definitely what you're describing as, you know, there's all these objective indicators that my life is going extremely well, and therefore, who am I to question that, no matter how I'm feeling, right? So, you know, at the time that I stepped back from public life, um, my mayoral campaign was, I mean, we sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts on the first day of the campaign, and we had outraised the entire eight-person field, um, you know, combined, we had tripled what they had raised. Like, it was, everything was going great. The, my book had become a New York Times bestseller. The podcast had hit number one when it debuted. So from the outside, everything looked great. And there was definitely a, a real f- sense of, I don't want to say pressure by that, but more like, I didn't I, I didn't want to feel, like, entitled. So I also felt like, I I felt some sense of pressure to live up to the ideal that had kind of been packaged and put out there for people. And then I felt like a lot of people were, you know, believed in and I didn't want to let people down. So that's the first element that I'm sure you can relate to, right? I mean, that sense of like, everything should be Mm -hmm. fine. Who am I to question that? Um, And then the second thing Mm -hmm. is, is more particular, I guess, to my experience, which is that in order to do the work that soldiers do, the military, uh, the army, in my case, has to necessarily um, sort of brainwash you. And I actually don't mean that in like a derogatory sense um, because here's what I mean. Like in my case, as an intelligence officer, the work I did, I had to go into meetings, go into rooms with people who were armed and who had questionable allegiances. Um, I was more or less by myself. It was usually me and my translator, not really knowing for sure uh, whether I was about to be kidnapped and killed or, you know, and, and and that's a scary thing to do. But in order to prepare me to do that, the military uh, needed to you know, sort of imbue in me the belief that everybody else was doing harder stuff than me. And that's also true if you have a more traditional uh, experience in combat, if you're doing patrols and you're getting shot at every day, that you know, it is reiterated to you over and over again for those folks, because that was not my experience. But for them, it was, it's reiterated, like everybody else has it harder. Everybody else is getting hurt. Every, you know. And so that's the reason that those soldiers are able to continue to go on those patrols. It's the reason that I was able to continue to go into those rooms and do my job because everybody around me was doing it. And it seemed like a lot of people had it worse. The problem is, while that's a really important um, aspect of doing the job, when you're done doing the job, nobody turns that off. 
And so then in addition to the more, you know, typical problem I was having of like, my life seems to be very good. Who am I to complain? I also had the problem of, I was really trained to believe that every other soldier who was now a veteran had it worse than me. So it would be stolen valor for me to admit to myself that I was experiencing post-traumatic stress, that I had this mental wound. Do you think that you had a tendency to depression before you got involved? No. In the military? Um, in my case, no, really? um, I don't. And that's and what's weird about that for me is that my period between, and I, I didn't mean to answer that emphatically in a way like as if I was judging anybody who did. I just, <laughs> I didn't mean to like, no, not no, me. No, I mean, it's just interesting. It's fascinating. It's, no, no, it's fascinating because I'm interested because I think sort of speaking as someone who's been, had chronic depression, um, bipolar disorder for my whole life, um, that idea that I, I shouldn't question, you know, that, that everyone else has it worse for me and I just need to work harder. Like that's sort of a default setting. Mm. Yeah. And I'm interested that sort of the army actually trains that into you. Yeah. I mean, a buddy of mine told me once, um, he said, you know, somewhere there's uh, like in a VFW hall, there's a World War II vet saying, yeah, I was first wave at D-Day, but I was in the back of the landing craft. I mean, it's not a big deal, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, it, what what happened with me though is that it had, you know, I didn't actually get treatment until almost twelve years after my deployment. So that I means for over a decade I was experiencing this stuff, and it was gradually getting worse. So for me, while it is the case that I had not experienced this prior, I almost couldn't remember what I was like prior to the deployment, which meant mm-hmm. it, it just made me more likely to feel like I guess this is just how I am. This is just who I am. Um, instead of realizing, no, I wasn't like this before. I just, I kind of forgot who I was before because it had been so long that I'd been living with all these symptoms. And then for me, um, and maybe this is unique to post-traumatic stress, the symptom that lifted the earliest in my, in therapy for me was depression. And I, and I, my understanding is that that's because for me, depression was an outgrowth of dealing with all the other symptoms and not being able to um, surmount them. And so as, as some mm-hmm. of those other symptoms got addressed, the first thing that was actually, that, that lifted for me was depression. Yeah. Two, two and a half months into treatment. And I'd been, at least on the depression end, I'd, I'd responded pretty well relatively early. And then I just had like a, I don't know, I had a, a few bad days. Like I had bad nightmares, that kind of thing for a few days in a row. That sort of a relapse of that symptom, and so I went in to my weekly therapy session, and I, and I said to my therapist at the VA, I said, um, I, and I remember being like really frightened about it because I was like, I feel like I'm like slipping back into depression, and I remember he said, well, how long has this been going on? I saw you a week ago, and I was like, it's almost a week, and he was like, that's not depression. He's like, I think you had a bad week, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he was like, he was like, that's that's a bad week, man. That's not depression. I was like, oh, okay. And then like, I felt a lot better because because I think what I was starting to get really down about was this fear that I was going back into this place I thought I had sort of at least temporarily escaped from, and um, and yeah, like for me, I think when I look back on what became depression for me, it you know what I was living with was I hadn't I didn't get a good night's sleep for almost twelve years. Um, I felt like basically in danger all the time. And also like my loved ones were in danger all the time. Um, and I felt this enormous, uh, 
like mountain of shame that I would just pile. I would just find more and more reasons to pile shame on top of shame for myself. I, I became emotionally numb where I couldn't really feel any good feelings as well as I numbed myself from the bad feelings. Um, so I couldn't feel the good ones either. And just after a while, that just becomes completely exhausting. And then, and then, you know, naturally, I guess that leads to depression, just a sense of like, this is a miserable existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is um, a, a wonderful distinction between depression and having a bad day. Um, I, I have to say, as someone, again, who has somewhat chronic depression, but mostly lifted, I, when I have a bad day, I'm almost like, yes, that was just a bad day. <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. I can totally do a bad day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there is actually a time period that defines chronic it, or a, a true depression. It's like two weeks. I, th- I was going like to say, I think it was, I think that's what he told me it was two weeks. Cause he was like, talk to me when it's been two weeks. And, um, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and the other difference for me now, and I, I started to notice it maybe four or five months in is being able to exercise self-compassion in a way that I had not, um, prior mm-hmm. to, you know, going into therapy and talking about like sort of the uh, the nature of the relationship between trauma and shame and guilt and that sort of thing is that as I started to exercise those things, which I also, with my wife and I, we started to, to read a, a lot more about self-compassion. I was able to do things like if I, you know, sort of made a misstep as a dad that day, that was the kind of thing where it would have, that would have laid me low for a while, you know, or or just if I had been off with my wife and maybe like, short with her and and then we got an argument like that would have ruined a lot of things for me and then but on this day like I had a couple of things like that happen and and I remember I was folding laundry with Diana with my wife and I and I said something like yeah you know I I didn't do that very well today I didn't do that but you know I guess I'll, I'll do better tomorrow and and then she just was like You've never said anything like that before. Like, and it's been years since I heard you say something like that. And right then I was like, wow, I'm starting to internalize some of these tools. And that was a big moment for me, realizing that I, I had the capacity to give myself a break. And I, and I, you know, I just hadn't had that for over a decade. And again, like one can kind of see how in the military you'd want to train some of that out of somebody, right? Like you would want to just ask people to stick to high standards. You would want people to demand a lot of each other and of themselves. But those skills or that those habits are don't really serve one in the long term. I'm wondering if they actually are even that good long-term service in a military environment. They're they're really good in a uh, it's a great question. They're really they're really important in a combat environment. And in a specifically combat. Right. And it's interesting for me because after after my combat deployment, I came home and I was a, a platoon trainer, basically a combat leadership instructor for people who were becoming officers in the army. And and in that environment, I had to take this completely different approach of like having these so the same approach in the sense of having exacting standards, you were not allowed to make a mistake, but also understanding that people had to make mistakes in order to learn and being ultimately able to just make them do a lot of push-ups and then put them back at a clean slate, right? <laughs> but, I, but I couldn't do that with, right. my, with myself. And so at one point in therapy, um, my therapist, a, a lot of my early therapy appointments were, it was almost like going to class. Like he would, 
I learned a lot about the brain and particularly my own. Mm. And and he would draw things on a whiteboard. Like he would we would talk for the first part and then he would draw like different symptoms and draw out PTS on the whiteboard. And then he would sort of then draw in lines to my own symptoms and the things I'd been talking about. And I remember at one point he did um, two columns and one column was um, traits that you need in Afghanistan and on a combat deployment. And the other column were, you know, emotions and traits that you need here to operate. And it was, you know, survival stuff on the, on the Afghanistan column. It's, you know, vigilance, awareness, uh, you know, hyper alertness, all that. And then on, and, and on the other column, it's like, um, empathy, um, you know, uh, like love and forgiveness and, and all these things and self-compassion. But the really interesting part was he asked me, he said, what if you went to Afghanistan and you were to use this column, this civilian side U.S. Mm-hmm. column? I was like, well, I don't know that I would have survived. And he was like, exactly. What's going on in your brain is your brain got to a point where it got kind of stuck in this other column, but it also wants to go to that column anyway because it understands that column. That column is simple. It knows what to do in that column. And you and basically he just described it as you never fully adjusted back to this other column. And that's really what we're doing. We're just adding these emotions back in. And uh and now I can feel things again. And it's uh it's like being able to see color. You know, it it's uh it, it, I I still don't take it for granted. I still really appreciate it because I can still feel it and it still feels kind of new. You know, I've I've told as I've trained soldiers and I've had soldiers, I've trained so many and, and, and said to them that when you go over there, the symbol of America can't just be you and your rifle. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's also got to be the good work that you do. And and the thing is though, and the reason I do think it relates to Peace Corps or or being a, a you know, uh, living in, in a high crime area or being a, or patrolling a high crime area, either way, you know, it's, you exercise compassion, you exercise these things every day, but you just do it at a level of alertness, Mm. um, that you, that you wouldn't otherwise. So I felt like, I remember feeling over there, like, actually I didn't feel this over there because you don't detect it when it's happening, or at least I didn't. But I remember coming home and feeling as though I all of a sudden didn't have access to these emotions that I had access to before. And and at least, you know, I didn't understand it to be post-traumatic stress, but I did understand at the time that, that you know, in a given day when you're deployed, you're going to be bored for a lot of that day. You're going to be tired for a fair amount of that day. You might be homesick. And then there's, at least in my case, usually going to be a part of that day where you're also uh, frightened or if not frightened because you've been there a couple of weeks now and it's like weird what can feel normal, at least hyper alert, like uh, in a state of mind where you are ready to take life if necessary. But that's really only four states of being. Whereas when you come home, uh, you, you know, there's, we're, we're meant to have many other states of emotional being uh, mm-hmm. walking around the world. That's how we relate to one another. And it was just really hard for me to access those again. And, um, and, and I thought, I was like, well, I just haven't used them in a while. But it, it was actually more than that. And so it, it's very possible to, to use all of, all of what you are, use all of your emotions and, your, and everything at your disposal while you're over there. But I think what happens is you underestimate the degree to which you are building a wall around yourself um, 
because you know that's it's that fight or flight human uh, instinct, mm-hmm. and I think that would be like if you were a Peace Corps volunteer or uh, you know a, a foreign service officer in the same place, it could easily have the same effect. You know, constant exposure to trauma and and to danger has an effect yeah. on people. I mean, it has an effect on your brain. And if you, for instance, where I live in Kansas City, if if you live on the east side of Kansas City. Uh, and you grow up on the east side of Kansas City, you grow up under a different set of rules as to uh, where you can walk Mm -hmm. and what's safe to do. Like when I've, you know, been knocking on doors on the east side of Kansas City in my campaigns, people will come out and they'll say things to me like, man, it is not safe out here. Like I don't let my kids play in the front yard. You all, you know, they'll be like, Sometimes they're like, I don't know if I can vote for somebody who doesn't have the sense not to do this, you know, and sometimes they're like, I, sometimes they're like, man, if you're willing to come out here, I'll vote for you. But the point being like, that doesn't happen in my neighborhood. Right. Like you're not going to grow up. That's going to shape the nature of, of your brain and how you understand the world. And and so um, in, in some ways, that's very similar to going into rooms and having to assess people as I did, like, am I safe here? Yeah. Am I? Is this a situation where I need to shoot first to survive? That, you know, that cannot, in some cases, that's not dissimilar from growing up on, in, a, in a street where there's a lot of shootings. I think it is probably important to, to point out that there is a exacerbating factor um, for people in the, many people in the military when it comes to uh, getting help and, and realizing that they might need it, which is um, masculinity. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about other forms of PTSD, there is, um, you know, for people who are survivors of sexual um, violence, for instance, I think um, there too, if you're a man, it's going to be harder to get help, right? There's just a, a way in which we don't mm-hmm. allow men to think of themselves that way. Was that something that you were thinking about or realized about yourself? Uh, I don't know if I, it's certainly not something I was consciously thinking about, but that's because I wasn't consciously thinking about most of what I should have realized when it came to my own symptoms, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, there was a point at which my wife and I went, went ahead and finally Googled post-traumatic stress, you know, that, that actually had a lot to do with, with me understanding it. I mean, I had gone so far out of my way to not allow, to, to I, I'd gone so far out of my way not to accept the idea. And, and in some ways for me, it was stigma, obviously. I mean, here I was thinking about running for president, planning to run for president. And there's no question that I, uh, and this may fall into that category, but I certainly looked at it and was like, well, how am I going to run for commander in chief if people think I I can't handle stress, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was something that I, it caused me to further tell myself the lie that it wasn't that, that it was just me. Um, And I, and this, I guess, really kind of goes into that. It sort of is in that masculinity uh, area, but it's, I guess, maybe a little more specific to the military. I was really, really afraid of feeling as though, or being seen as though, to me, it was the same thing, as though I, I was doing something which we call in the military stealing valor. You know, stealing right. valor is anytime somebody claims to have done more than they did. And, and so I, that was like my greatest fear because to me, one, I, I didn't want to be judged as somebody who did that, but I also, um, I felt like I had, I was, I felt so humbled, humbled by even being 
anywhere in the same group just by wearing the same uniform as some of the people who gave, I thought, much greater, I still think, much greater sacrifices than me. And so I was so, um, it was just so reprehensible to me. I was so repulsed by the idea of, of putting myself in a category that was anything like them, you know, um, that it was, it was just beyond the pale for me to say, well, I have, I have suffered the same injury as somebody who experienced a more traditional form of combat than me. You know, I, I, my vehicle was never blown up. I, I never had to take a life and I never had a bullet whiz by my ear. Um, my, my post-traumatic stress came from a very atypical type of combat. It came from going into rooms I didn't know whether I was going to get out of and not having anybody know where I was and being exposed for long periods of time. And, and that's just not the kind of combat I saw in the movies. And, um, and so for me, I was really afraid of, of that. Even, even if it wasn't public, even if it had just been privately to myself, feeling as though I was stealing valor mm-hmm. was just something I couldn't do. And, and, I, and I think you could put that into that category, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I would imagine it's a dude who came up with that. Yeah. Well, it's also an interesting sort of like mm-hmm. um, good white liberal boy kind of way of looking at it, I feel like, like the sort of like um, deference to like the better sort of masculinity, like, no, that guy's a real dude and I don't want to steal his valor. Right. Um, But also I have to say what it makes me me think of, honestly, is my own um, experience as a survivor of sexual violence and how I spent years thinking, well, it wasn't that bad. Right. Like Mm. what I went through just wasn't Mm -hmm. as bad as what other people have been through and therefore I don't deserve help. You know, like I shouldn't even call myself a survivor. That's actually was a huge step for me. Like, no, I'm not a survivor. Like that's what other people are who've been through worse. Right. I, I think I've heard from a lot of folks who have, have said that. And I, and I think that makes, I think you're right. And, and even beyond that, I've heard from, I've, you know, since I made this public, um, it's actually interesting. Prior to prior to making this public, people very rarely came to me with, including people very close to me. You know, they never really came to me with anything they were going through on the mental health side. And and then I made this public, and it's been a blessing because not only have thousands of people um, communicated with me, but a lot of people who I'm very close to, who I had no idea were going through anything. I, I became basically a, a safe space for that, and. And I, and I do think that's a blessing. And I've heard from a lot of folks um, who, are, uh, who, are, who are survivors. Um, interestingly, I've also heard from a lot of folks who are survivors of neither the trauma you experienced or the trauma I experienced, but sometimes just people who they were in a bad car accident mm-hmm. or that sort of thing, right? And, and they, they too will preface what they'll – they often will preface what they say to me with, you know, I wasn't in a war. And I always stop them and I say, look – Trauma is trauma. Like what gets you, one of the things that got me in trouble was trying to grade my trauma, trying to rank it as compare it to other people's. Because what I have learned is that my brain doesn't actually have the context or the reference point of what another person experienced. My brain only knows what I experienced and that's what it's working with. And that's, that's what has damaged it or, or, or injured it, I would say. Um, and that's true for everyone else too. And, and, and it's just a waste of our time, all the time that we spend as people ranking our own trauma, grading our own trauma against other people. All you're doing is wasting time when you could be getting better. Yeah. 
I've shared this story on this podcast before, but and it it happened be- long before I actually got help, but it's always stuck with me, which is the first time I decided to do something about my suicidal ideations was actually in college. And I remember I called like the college helpline. You know, there's many schools have like some kind of mental health hotline. And I called and I was just super embarrassed. And I was like, um, you know, I don't know. I'm having these thoughts and I don't know if it's emergency or not. And the woman I other in the line, bless her heart, I wish I could just, I owe her so much. She said, well, if it's an emergency for you, it's an emergency. <laughs> yeah. And that That's makes beautiful. me tear up right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um I wish that I'd been able to sort of take that truly to heart. It took me another like 20 years. But um, but this message has stuck, stuck with me, and it's true. Yeah, I was going to say, it clearly made an impression on you at the time. And whether you did, whether you took steps at the time or not, it it made a difference for you at the time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, right? I mean, I, I would imagine it. And so, in my case, it was, I got to the point where I called um, the Veterans Crisis Line, which is also, it's the National Suicide Line. And, and um, I remember... Uh, I called and, and I was having a conversation, a similar one, um, with the woman on the other end of the line. And I remember what really struck me was from the sound of her voice, I could tell that I did not sound different than any of the other phone calls she had had during that shift or any shift. And that was a huge eye-opener for me. That was, that was one of the big turning moments for me that said, okay, this is serious and I got I to gotta do something about it. Because I, of course, because I felt like, well, that's not what I'm it's not what's going on with me. I thought it would be, you know, probably what you thought going into it, which is, well, come on, this this line is for this line is for people who, yeah. <laughs> who I mean, don't don't, you know, keep this channel clear. Right, right? is what I thought was going to happen, but it wasn't like that. She just, I I didn't sound any different than anybody else to her. And when I could hear that in her voice, it meant to me, oh, I am I'm on the road to being one of the 22 veterans a day who take their life, and uh, that was scary enough for me that I did something about it. I want to kind of mark this a little more clearly because it. I confess, even though I am someone who called a hotline at one point in my life, actually probably a couple times, um, it surprises me that that was the thing that you did. Big Mr. Famous Guy with all the resources and the Googling and the, and the you know, in the, the things that a middle-aged, middle-class white guy has, right? Mm-hmm. Like you still called a hotline. Yeah, it's you know what it's. I, I I remember thinking, well, um, I should go to the people who know what this is, and mm-hmm. and it's interesting because the other side of that is then once I announced that I was going to step back and I was going to get treatment for post traumatic stress, um, I, I said in my announcement that I was going to go to the VA in Kansas City, and what's interesting about that is how many people, some who were close to me, some who I didn't know said, and they were very well-meaning, but they said, why would you go to the VA? Like, you have resources, Mm. you know, and a lot of people reached out with, don't go to the VA, try this, I will treat you, and, you know, all this. And I remember thinking, just like what I got when I spoke to that woman, I remember thinking, I want to go and talk to the people who talk to people like me all day. And, And that's just something I try to get across for any veterans who are listening you know, there are a lot of shortcomings when it comes to the VA. All of those shortcomings are about, they're systemic. They're about the system. They're about the process. They're about the bureaucracy and the many loopholes in that system. None of them are about the clinicians. Every single person that I have encountered there has 
been wholly committed to serving veterans, has taken enormous pride in their job, and furthermore, has really had enormous expertise in serving veterans. Because there was never a moment when I was sitting with my therapist at the VA where I said something and he sort of blanched or reacted like, really? I mean, it was it, it was reassuring that it was always like, yeah, that makes sense. And that's because, you know, the the person who sat in that chair for the hour before me and the person who sat in that chair for the hour after me had a lot of the same problems and said a lot of the same things. And I, and it, it just, it made a big difference for me. Now you're reminding me of like why I love AA. <laughs> like, yeah, I can see the similarity there. Yeah, because, you know, there was a time when I was thinking about getting sober and there's like, well, go to this therapist and go to that therapist. And there's this medically assistant, you know, way to do it. And there's that kind of treatment protocol. And, you know, what really helped me was talking to a lot of other drunks. You know, and talking to people mm-hmm. who talk to other drunks like that was the thing that I needed. And there's I mean, everyone should get all the help that they can. Right. And there's a different mm-hmm. path for everyone. And you get to choose what your path is. But, yes, like I find enormous comfort and enormous like and this is sort of what I hear when you're talking about, it, which is that being seen for just who you are, not as anything you carry in the outside world, you know. But, like, just mm-hmm. another veteran with PTSD for you. Like, just another addict and alcoholic for me. Like, that's who I am in this room. That's all I need to be. And therefore understood. Like, yeah. really understood. And and yeah. not feeling at all like you have to perform. Because, mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting, I look back, you know, I, I never really understood. For so many years, I never understood why the generation of veterans, uh, you know, prior to me, the, the Vietnam generation or even the Korea or the the World War II vets, I never understood why they, for instance, spent so much time in VFW halls. I just thought, okay, well, it's a it's a bar where they have a membership. No, now I get, like, that was group therapy, <laughs> right? They, they're sitting there and they're talking. They, they don't feel they can talk about it with people who haven't experienced it. So they're like a VFW hall, like, they're going in to talk with literally other veterans of foreign wars about, you know, their experience a lot of the time and trading stories. and 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 so now, like, I, the work I do now working at Veterans Community Project, all the leaders of Veterans Community Project are combat veterans. And so I, I didn't, I think I underestimated for many years how important it was to me to spend time with other combat veterans and, and just hang out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a really important thing in my life now. And so, yeah, it's like being around people who have shared experience with you is reassuring. Mm-hmm. And I think more than that, I think you said it right, the or said it right, said it in a way that really resonated with me earlier, which is being seen, just being seen and understood. Like, it's yeah. validating at a, at a very deep level not to be anything, not to have to be anything more than a member of this community. Like, you, you're, your performance has already been made, you know? <laughs> like, you've yeah. already made it. You're here. Like... You know, we, in AA, we sometimes we talk about earning a seat, right? Like that you, you're here, you've earned it. You're, you're, you don't need to do anything else. <laughs> like just be here. And to be, to feel accepted in a way that can come in interesting ways. Like we'll sit around uh, at, at Veterans Community Project and we come from different branches. We have similar experience, but different branches. We'll make Marine jokes or Army jokes or, you know, Navy jokes. And to an outside observer, we might not look like friends, you know, <laughs> um, but but it's really just all of our ways of saying like, 
we're brothers and we, you know, or we're brothers and sisters and we, yeah, we talk about this stuff in this way. Um, and it's just, it's just another form of acceptance. I'm going to take a quick break and then I want to come back and actually talk a little bit more about, um, the veterans that you work with and the veterans place, you know, in, in our world today. I think there's something all of us can agree on. Nurses, doctors, dentists, people who work in medicine and healthcare, eh, pretty awesome. And I think all of us can think of a time when a medical professional helped us or a family member. There are amazing people who dedicate their lives to serving others. And shouldn't these amazing people wear scrubs that make them feel good? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if I've ever thought about this, but scrubs... The uniform of medical professionals, they look pretty plain most of the time, but shouldn't they like just feel good and maybe even look good? What these amazing people do every day is more than a job and what they wear is more than a uniform. Shouldn't they wear scrubs that help them feel good and perform their best at the same time? Well, Figs is a company that is making scrubs stylish and functional for the people who deserve it most. Believe it or not, they offered me... um, uh, a discount to buy my own scrubs. And it, I was like, oh, I don't need scrubs. So why would ever would I do this? And then I looked on the website and there's a pair of joggers that like have lots of pockets because a medical professional would need them. And I was like, that, those would come in real handy. Like just because doesn't everyone love pockets? That's how stylish they are. <laughs> For years, nurses, doctors, dentists, and other awesome medical professionals were forced to wear scratchy, ill-fitting scrubs Not only were they ugly and uncomfortable, they weren't designed with innovative technical properties to protect and hold those life-saving tools. In my case, those tools would be, of course, an iPhone. Figs creates the highest quality medical apparel so that medical professionals look their best, feel their best, and perform their best every day. Every set of figs is antimicrobial, protects from germs and bacteria, ridiculously soft, moisture-wicking, and features four-way stretch again I feel like all of us could use this in our lives. (laughs) They are made with yoga waistbands and come in a variety of styles from classic straight legs to joggers and skinnies. Figs make great gifts for the lifesavers in your life and gift cards are available. So next time your doctor, dentist, nurse, dermatologist, or pediatrician saves the day, tell them thank you by sending them figs. Whether you're one of the awesome humans that works in healthcare or someone that just wants to say thanks to these deserving folks, or if you just decide that this kind of technical apparel is something you can use in your everyday life, Figs is going to make saying thank you to them easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase by using my code FRIENDS. Get ready to love some scrubs. Head to www dot w-e-a-r-f-i-g-s dot com that's www.wearfigs.com and yes you have to include those www's because i found that it doesn't work if you don't and enter my code friends to get 15 percent off at checkout we all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run but even if we try to eat well kale salads and green smoothies, we're still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. And that is why I take Ritual. 
the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Rituals Essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of in food, all in their clean, absorbable forms, no shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm than good. Too easy to take capsules, and they are very serious about the easy to take for some reason, and I don't know the science. They do not upset your stomach. They provide nine nutrients that you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I do take them. I take them every day. I have a subscription, like they say. The first thing I love is that they don't upset my stomach. I can take them first thing in the morning. And the second thing I love about them is that they smell minty. And that's like a probably something that costs them like two cents to make happen. And yet it makes me so happy in the morning to smell minty things that I put in my mouth. And in fact, what I've discovered is they have this little insert that smells minty. It's not the vitamins themselves. And so now when I go through a bottle of Ritual, I take out the minty insert thing and I put it in something else I want to smell good. So that is my life hack to you today. Reuse the minty thing in the Ritual bottle. From D3 to Omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach. You don't get that fishy aftertaste either that is common with most omega-3s. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. A subscription is easy to start. It is easy to snooze. It's a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month. No strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during the first three months at ritual.com slash friends. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. So you're working with the Veterans Community Project, and that sounds like it's a Veterans Community Project. <laughs> Tell me more yeah. about what it is. Yeah, it's it's a, a really, um, really wonderful organization. And I, I should start by giving a little bit of the backstory of how I got involved, which is uh, about six weeks before I made my announcement that I was going to step back from things, uh, I toured Veterans Community Project. It's based here in Kansas City. And I, I toured it, you know, just sort of that nonprofit tour that a lot of uh, politicians make. You oh, know, here, let me see, see that thing that you're doing. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and incorporated into my work and all that stuff. And, yeah. And, and I had done many, many of those. Um, but this one really, it really struck a chord with me. Um, what Veterans Community Project does is it's not an advocacy group. It, it is a social service agency that exists to fill in the gaps in veteran services and to make sure— that no veteran veteran ever falls through those cracks in the system that we, that we talked about earlier. And so they do that in two ways. One way is uh, they have a, a walk-in clinic that serves any veteran um, and and connects them with resources that they may need in the community, no matter what they may be. That's served over 6,000 folks here in the Kansas City area, including including me, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, the other 
uh, thing that it does is, and what it's best known for, is it fills the gaps in services for homeless veterans. And they did that by creating a, a village of tiny homes uh, for for homeless veterans. And and so the way I ended up, you know, becoming not just, what is it, not not just involved, but uh, a customer um, was uh, about six weeks after I, I did that tour. Um, I, uh, I made my announcement that I was stepping back and I, I went to, to the VA and I found quickly that though everybody there wanted to help, uh, the, the process was a lot more onerous than I thought. And here I was looking at a few months of paperwork and, and kind of at the time, sort of an overwhelming feeling of having to put together this case to establish that I had, you know, been through something that warranted these services. And the reason for that, by the way, is that the... Uh, the rule is that if you come in within five years of your combat deployment, you're enrolled in the system, no questions asked. However, if you are beyond that five years, you have to basically you know, do all this paperwork, prove up this case, which is really ridiculous because trauma doesn't get better with age. But that's the situation I was in. And here I was, you know, phone full of influential contacts, pretty high level government experience, law degree. And I was feeling overwhelmed by this. And so I contacted my friend uh, Brian Meyer, who was this, who uh, was one of the co-founders of Veterans Community Project, and uh, and he said, "Yeah, man, come on in." And so next day, I walk in there through the front doors. Um, it's just another veteran who needed that that help, and they handled my paperwork and got me into the mental health services at the VA right away. Got me enrolled, and I was really inspired by that. And uh, and now, you know, and and then after that, as I as I got. Um, progressively, you know, responded well to, to therapy and everything. I started hanging around, volunteering a little bit, and they had had um, inquiries from all over the country from cities who said, hey, we love what you've done in Kansas City. They've effectively effectively ended veterans' homelessness here. They said, um, come and do it here. And he said, like, you've created a national organization before. Do you want to do that here? And, and it just seemed like a natural fit for me. And so that's what I'm doing now, and I love it. So a little while ago, uh, you had some refreshing candor. You admitted that you were planning on running for president, but I assume that's only something you can do if you're not planning on running again. Uh, yeah, I, well, it turns out, right? I mean, like I spent about a year knowing <laughs> that and uh, and not being so candid. So I don't want to take too much credit for it. But uh, yeah, I mean. Well, you could just announce now that you're going to run again, but yeah. then the, I guess it is a little late in the game. But it, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little late. And also, I just don't want to. Um, I, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, no, that's also refreshing. I don't want yeah, to. You, you don't know, hear look, that a lot either. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was being a little glib, but I would, I would explain it two ways. One, uh, I'm genuinely really impressed by the field. Like, I, you know, I, I haven't paid, well, admittedly, I haven't paid as close of attention as I used to. Um, but, well, I mean, like I used to live it, right? And now I'm doing other things. But uh, I do have a bunch of personal friends running for president, and um, and I'm proud of them. I think they're doing a good job. So that that feels good and doesn't make me feel like I need to be doing that. And then the other part of it is, um, that's a much bigger part of it, is that, you know, I think— um, that for a long time, because I was experiencing so much inner turmoil and what was going on with me was so uh, unpleasant to the point of unbearable, I was living in the future in the sense of always planning the next step, always being able to work towards something, and that would order my life. And I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. And, and I don't want to take too much credit away from myself. Like, 
I, you know, I'm not saying like I didn't have a sense of patriotism and love of my country and, you know, my community. I mean, that's why I ran for office. But I also had a strong element of like, if I can just keep focused on the future, I don't have to deal with what's going on with me now. And one of the big changes in my life has been I'm really enjoying my life right now. I really enjoy the work I'm doing in, with Veterans Community Project. And I, and I, love, I love being a dad. I, you know, I'm, I'm able, I have the capacity, not just the time, but the capacity to be present in my home in a way that I, I couldn't really do before. I mean, I coach my son's baseball team. I, I dropped him off at school this morning. I will pick him up today. That's how it goes most days for me. Um, and the fact that I'm just enjoying what I'm doing so much right now makes this the first time since I came home from Afghanistan that I don't think about my life in terms of chapters and what's going to happen next and what can I build toward. I just kind of think of it in terms of you know, the next Little League game, the next uh, thing I can do to expand VCP. And honestly, I keep it as simple as like, you know, tomorrow's leg day. Like I'll be in the gym for that tomorrow. You know I mean? It's like, <laughs> like that's my life right now. And I'm, and I, there are times when I'm like, should I be thinking about other things? And then I, and then I'm able to stop myself and go, no, actually this is really good. I feel like I'm of value in the world and I'm enjoying myself. And that's why I'm like, I don't want to. I'm just like, and I kind of did it. That's the other thing. You know, I, I I was out there basically running for president for a year. So there's no like fear of missing out. Like I don't watch my friends running for president on TV and think, I wonder what that's like. like I know exactly what that's like. Oh, God. And um, <laughs> it's just not something that uh, any part of me wants to do right now. I appreciate all of your thoughts on, on why you don't want to run for president. And those are very... Um, wonderful um, statements of self-compassion and priorities. Uh, Two things about that. One, it makes me realize yet again that no truly sane person actually does run for president. (laughs) Um, People with the right values and priorities and sense of self-compassion tend to not enter politics in general. (laughs) And then the other thing is, please tell me that there's at least one part of you that thinks maybe the field doesn't need another white guy. Oh, of course. I mean, it's like more than... (laughs) More than one part of me. That's like an objective fact. I mean, and that's that's not like a you know a comment on any candidates. It's just, I mean, even if and I have no inclination to want to run right now. But if I did, I'm sure at this point, what would stop me is I'd look at it and go, okay, what do I add? Right? Like I don't see what it would be. Like, like I've jokingly said, I've jokingly said in the past that like, you know, I could shatter the glass ceiling that is like the, you know, uh, previously suicidal president, but I don't think that that's something the country's yearning for. So. Oh, but <laughs> I don't actually, I mean, Abraham Lincoln, I'm sorry. See, there you go. Like, Good point. See, I mean, had nothing. So. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, like. <laughs> They're going to go with real specific, like, Kansas, guy, no, Kansas guy, like, I don't know, like, former Afghanistan vet. Well, yeah. that, except no See, we Pete. got that. Got See? Pete in there. See so, what I'm saying? So, yeah. but no, that's, um, but for me, it's like, that's like. I have all these personal reasons why there's no part of me that wants to run for any office right now. And and I would also add that, like, mm-hmm. I feel very much that I'm still in public service. Like, I'm, you know, with what I'm doing. Yeah. With, so that, that scratches that itch. And, in fact, it really much better than before because no part of what I'm doing with Veterans Community Project is like, well, I got to do this in order to advance myself so that I can. Like, there's none of that. Like, there's none of that politics thing of, like, 
I got to bite this bullet in order to move forward so that I can make a difference on that. No, it's like, no, I just get up every day and try and put more roofs over, over, you know, the, the heads of homeless vets. That's really fulfilling. So I don't really ever even get to the calculus of like, am I needed in the field? But were I to get there? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think, and that's what I mean when I say it's a strong field. Like doesn't, I, I am not needed there. So, um, even yeah. if I were inclined, I, I wouldn't do it at this point. I'm really glad you brought up how the, the what you're doing already scratches that itch for public service, because one thing that I hear a lot from people who listen to the show is just no finer, can't put too fine a point on it, which is that hopelessness, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, powerlessness, that we live in a moment that people who with progressive values, people with humanitarian, let's go beyond that, humanitarian values, human values, democratic values. I think it's much more widespread than any party or ideology um, feel very much at the mercy of events. Um, that the between the, this, the, the president himself and the news cycle, this is a very destabilizing time to be alive and that it can cause people to kind of shrink back from engagement with the world, I think. Um, but what I always offer, and I think you can attest to, is the surest way to feel some hope is to actually try and connect with people who need something. There's this weird way in which being of service to others makes you feel um, like you, you are yourself better, Right that you've done something in the world, that it, it, it alleviates that sense of powerlessness and despair in a way that just thinking about the news, <laughs> you know, can never do. Or even activism, I would say, actually. Like, even sort of like what we think of as activism in terms of like writing letters or protesting or whatever, those are great. I love those things. But it's that connection that you're making on a daily basis that seems to make a real difference. Yeah, and I've really learned to think about that as like a diet in the sense that, um, you know, while I'm, I'm not inclined or have any interest in running for office right now. I, you know, next year when we have a nominee, um, I will be out there. I'll be, I'll, I'll be an activist. I'll be campaigning. I'll be doing those things. But when I say it's a diet, I also, I derive so much sense of value right now. And so much, I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to do something that makes a difference that I can see. You know, I, I, my son is only six, but you know, he he remembers when I was going to try to be mayor. And, and to my surprise, recently, he even told me, like, yeah, remember when you were going to try to be president? I was like, I didn't even know he knew what president was, right? And he's <laughs> like, yeah, like we went to New Hampshire, you know. And I was like, okay, yeah, you really, you were following along. And, um, but he doesn't, even with that, he doesn't really understand what that means, right? Like he remember my organization, Let America Vote. He remembered that that was the thing where I worked with Abe, Abe Rakov, who's like his best bud in the world and, and ran Let America Vote with me. Like that's how he understood those things. It, it's, it's ephemeral. He couldn't get his hands around it. But then, um, you know, he's been to VCP, Veterans Community Project. He loves it. He thinks it's so cool. And a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, we were at an intersection and he was in the back seat in his car seat, and uh, and I'm just kind of thinking about other things, staring out the windshield. And we were uh, at the stoplight, and there was a, a homeless man with a sign next to us. And I was, like I said, distracted, not thinking about it. And and true, my son was like, 
Daddy, we should give him a dollar. Do we have a dollar? And I was kind of clued back in. I was like, oh, yes, I got a dollar out and gave it to the guy. And and I said to True, I said, man, that was awesome, buddy. Like, I was not paying any attention, and you noticed that, and you decided to help him. And he said, well, he had on an army jacket, and he looks like he he was an army man, and he's going to be cold tonight, and he needs he needs somewhere to live. He needs help. And that's what you do, Daddy. You help those people. And that, it was very moving for me. And, uh, and, and I got really emotional, but like, I'm getting a little emotional talking about it now, but you know, there's that diet, right? Of like, I still have the same opinions I had before about the direction of the country. And I'm still going to do my part to make a difference, to see that that change happens. But at the same time, um, it means so much to me to play a role of helping other veterans, particularly when these, these wars have affected my life so greatly to be able to spend potentially the rest of my life making sure um, that nobody gets left behind, not just my war or previous wars, but let's be honest, future wars. That's an incredible opportunity. And my son really understanding what that is just drives that home for me, the difference between those two and how both can be valuable and important. Well, let's hopefully keep those future wars to a minimum. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> I just... <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, I, I get it. I get it. Um, but that's why we need to need to. You know, that's why you do the activism and the voter turnout and stuff is for that part. And right. then it's like then we have that stuff that's closer to home too. Yeah, you know, get a new president to minimize future wars, but also <laughs> make sure we're taking care of the people <laughs> who are veterans of them. That's right. Well, that's really. I mean, I can't think of a of a better place to kind of wind this up. I appreciate so much you coming on the show and and your oh god people have probably said this a thousand times but your candor oh, it's, yes it's quite okay I, um, I, I, uh, I know I appreciate I know. the pun so I like sorry. a good pun yeah no you well you, you should get a dollar every time someone says it well if people want to donate a dollar for every pun you can go to veteranscommunityproject.org <laughs> we are a donations based organization <laughs> and um, we'd love your help Thank you very much. Thank you. No one has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, luggage, and all your mail and packages? It is a hassle, and that is why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you cannot get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or put it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com and click the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Podcast microphone, enter friends. Sheila Bynum Coleman, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
And thanks, Crooked Media and Data for Progress <laughs> and for F. Gerrymandering and everyone for highlighting this race. This is so amazing. Well, you know, it is something that we're having to do, right? Um, I think that a lot of people have come to recognize that while Trump's election was the big shock to the system for a lot of us, uh, it was definitely the result of a lot of structural, let me say, oppression. Is that maybe the right word? Um, oh, yeah. He definitely <laughs> w- woke people up. Like He woke up the dead. People who were just not paying attention to anything. And they're now awoke. They're wide awake. You know, I personally still like using woke as a term. To me, it recalls the Buddhist uh, version of awakening. Uh, and it's true that we're, we're, I think a lot of people, good, good white liberals who did not recognize that there were systemic problems with our voting system, and also systemic problems with just not paying attention to down-ballot races, and that's just our own damn fault, you know, we're having to change things, and you are part of that change. Thank you for coming on the show to talk about it. And thank you. Thanks for having me. It really means a lot to me. I appreciate it. And I must say, you are the better Cox. (laughs) Okay, low bar. Um, So this is your third run at this office. Is that, am I right? I, you are correct. I will not give up. I'm going to keep fighting for the people. You know, I am. That is something. It may be one of the most impressive things about you. Because when I look at running for office, and it can be a local office, it could be school board, it could be student council. Losing is hard, right? It is extremely hard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, it is difficult. It's it's not an easy task, and being a woman and losing is 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 it's just very difficult. And you know, as a woman running for office, people already think that women just aren't qualified, right? Mm-hmm. That we should be, you know, standing at the school bus, putting our kids on the bus, and that's about it. It's you know, it's people just don't think that women should lead. And if you lose, then you definitely should sit down and let someone else. Um, step up and do something but men can run and never have a problem they can lose over and over again and no one cares <laughs> they'll keep supporting their man <clears throat> sorry I, lo- I love Beto but it is funny that someone can a, a white man just to just cite a random example um, can lose a big big race and yet be a plausible candidate for president I think if you lose this race you should run for president how's that for a backup plan <laughs> We're not going to lose. We're, gonna, we're definitely going to okay, win. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just saying it's a backup plan. Yeah. So you just said it's so hard to lose. Um, walk me through the decision to run again. Well, How does that well, happen? Well, first, let me say when I lost, it wasn't um, hard for me just because Sheila Bonham Coleman lost. I felt really bad that the people around me that would be impacted by me winning that I let them down because we're talking about rights, people's rights and liberties that were impacted by me not winning. And that was very difficult for me. And so when it came time for me to say, okay, can I do this again? You know, I was kind of like, oh, 
I don't know if I could do this, but I knew I wanted to because the problem was still the problems were still there. And I recall my husband and I having a conversation and I said, you know, let's just go on vacation and let's just, you know, I, I'm not doing this again. And he was he came in the bathroom while I was taking a shower and he said, listen, if, if you don't do it, then who will? Things are still the same. Nothing has changed. And then he walked out and didn't say anything. And so <laughs> I came a little out. abrupt first. I'm in the shower. Like, you know, if you're going to take the trouble of bothering someone in the shower, I think you should at least stay to help towel off. But OK, fine. <laughs> and so then I said, you know what? You're right. We're going to do this again. And, you know, and it, it was a decision that we also had to make with our family. Right. Because I had to make sure that the kids and everybody was all in because it's a lot running for office. And so. We had to make sure that everybody was okay with it. And they were. All of, you know, my family and my kids, everyone's okay. But the most important thing to me was about the people that would be impacted by this election and what was at stake. And so when you say walk me through it, it's it's more like just thinking about all of the people that are going to be impacted, the issues that have gone unresolved, unaddressed. And that's how, you know, that makes the decision less difficult. And, you know, in 2017, I lost by roughly 800 votes. And now I'm in a much bluer district. When I ran before, it was a ruby red district. And it was like over the river and through the woods to get to the district. Like it literally was cut out the people down the street from me. With this district, it's like a circle around the district. It's a, Mm. it's. It's not gerrymandered. And so the people who are at the corner store with me can vote for me, the people at the grocery store, but also at the other end of the county. You know, we I have people that I have worked with, like um, at Virginia State University in Ettrick and Matoka in the southern part of the district. So it's nowhere that I'm unfamiliar. It may not have been part of the district that I ran in before, but I'm not traveling in, in unfamiliar territory at all. So let's back up a little bit because you talked about your inspiration for running and it's based a lot in the people that you're fighting for. But I'm curious, I, I get curious about this for everyone who runs for public office, which is like, when was that first moment? And, and if you can recall the situation when you were like, you know what? I'd be perfect for this job. I never had the the that oh I'd be perfect <laughs> for it. It was more so like I felt I had to do it. So when uh-huh. I first started this journey, my son has a learning disability and I was fighting through the red tape of getting what he needed through the special education program. And I really felt that it was a funding issue that the teachers just did not have the resources they needed in order to help my kid or mm-hmm. the other kids that were, were impacted by the special education program. I mean, you have so many kids who need services and the, the teachers and the staff, they have a little bit of resources and and they have to cram everyone in in this short period of time. And so 
as I was fighting for my kid, I felt like it was a funding issue. So I went to my school board men- member and I talked to him about it. He was like, oh, it's a state issue. Um, go to your delegate. And so I called my delegate. I, m- I remember calling him over and over again until he finally returned my call. And when I spoke to him, I said, hey, can I get a 15 minute meeting to talk about this special education program and how we could work together to make it better? Because I had this issue, but I found that there are lots of families who have similar issues to me. Like we have so many things in common. And so to me, I felt like it was something that could impact hundreds of people across our district. And so he said no. And I said, what? He was like, I'm not getting involved. And then I said, I'm going to run against you. And that Mm. was in 2015. And so in 2015, I just went to my husband. I was like, hey, let's I'm going to run for office. And he was like, come on. I had no idea how to do it. I just kind of figured it out. And I knocked on as many doors as I could and I lost. And then my daughter was shot in 2016, which added to the layers of why I needed to run for office. And so then I ran again in 2017. And that's when that blue wave came through Virginia. And I lost that um, election by 819 votes. And then here we are in 2019. And the district was redrawn. And here we are again. And I was like, yeah, you know, at first I was like, kind of like, no, I don't know. And then I had that conversation with my husband and we've been all in ever since. So, I feel like we're having a fairly upbeat interview and you seem like an upbeat person, (laughs) but I feel like I need to rewind a little bit and note that you spoke about your son who has a a learning disability and that's not a tragedy or anything, but it's serious. It's something, you know, that has an impact on a lot of people's lives and needs to be dealt with with some, you know, I'd say a mix of gravity and upbeatness, let's say. And then you mentioned that your daughter got shot. Yes, she was shot in 2016, leaving a party. So, yes, as a parent, like when my son has this learning disability, but also he has some psychological um, problems because he was being bullied in school because he didn't fit in. And um, so he was having some suicide ideation and he was he was struggling right and so my back was against the wall and I came out fighting and so then through that process yeah my daughter was shot in 2016 and she survived but out of that I felt deeply compelled right to try to fix some of the problems that we have it was just like come on like how does this happen and we're such an advanced society that your kids go out for a party and you get a call in the middle of the night saying that your daughter was shot you know what I mean and just for her to tell us a story that a guy and a girl got into an argument and they both pulled out their guns and they're shooting at each other and they didn't hit each other but she got hit running to the car and you know it's 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 just tragic and so many people don't have the same story as I do to say they can come out of this and say my daughter survived. I have a friend whose godson was just killed coming out of a a party and he was shot at his car, you know, shot in his head and he did not survive. And this this is happening way too much in our society. And, and people talk about the mass shootings, but we don't talk about the tragedy that's happening inside of the black community Every week, people are being killed. People are being hurt by just senseless gun violence. I mean, guns are everywhere and anyone can go get one. I mean, my kids told me they could go on social media and like my daughter just was like, look, you can go on Snapchat and get a gun and you don't have to 
have any type of check, no ID. And it's perfectly legal for anyone to sell a gun to anyone without having a check. And that's something that we need to look at. Like we're an advanced society. How, how is this possible? You keep on saying we're an advanced society. And sometimes I, I have to say, like when you tell me stories like that, I am, I don't know. I mean, we're technologically advanced, but there's clearly a lot of growth that we need to do. And I, I also want to back up and say, I appreciate you calling out this idea that, you know, white America, the news media, tends to get very worked up about mass shootings. And of course they do, right? I mean, that's, these are unbelievable tragedies. But there are unbelievable tragedies happening every day that don't make the news. And it's these situations that I think that, again, people aren't really thinking about when they think about gun violence. Um, these casual, uh, I, I have heard and read about so many situations, this leaving a party thing. I don't know if that's as common as it seems, but it sure seems like there's fights break out. It's not gang violence. It's not drugs. It's just their availability of guns. And a exactly. fight breaks out and someone gets hurt or, or killed. And you think that there are measures that, that lawmakers can take that will, that will reduce that kind of crime? I think so. I think that we just need common sense. We need gun safety, period. <laughs> and yeah. my opponent single-handedly stopped it during a special session in July by kicking this issue down to the to a, a commission and not addressing it, not even saying, hey, let our lawmakers have a discussion so that people can know how the lawmakers feel about it, to say that people's lives are not worth a, con a, a conversation during a special session when you have all the lawmakers there. And yes, if we have universal background checks, we can at least cut down on some of this. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. accessibility to guns is just insane. The fact that my 16-year-old kid can just go on Instagram and get a gun without having any back background check and no one has even they're not even they don't even have to ask how old are you how old are you <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean yeah I think that that's something when conservatives push back or, or I shouldn't say conservative when gun rights advocates oh there should be a better name for that um, when uh, gun death justifiers <laughs> uh, push back on the idea that these kinds of laws won't make a necessarily get rid of all guns I always want to point out like you know just even one or two would be be good, right? Like even if it just wasn't the one gun that that killed the woman that you know's son, right? right. If that one gun had not been available. And you know, know how many people's lives would be better today. Right. And you know when people say all the time, well, let's not um prevent law-abiding citizens from, you know, getting guns. But guess what? Everyone's a law-abiding citizen. And so they break the yeah. law and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and my, and, and my opponent, this, the speaker of the house, Kirk Cox, he had the NRA in his conference room after the Virginia beach um, massacre and in, during the special session. But at the, at the same time, we're saying, you know, we don't want to look at it, but we don't want to look at the, the real solutions to the problem but the nra can be in a lawmaker's conference room and and listen when i'm out talking to people in the district 
I've met so many NRA members who say, hey, we need universal background checks. So I don't really think that it's the NRA members or the people in our community, because I've never met one person who says that they don't want universal background checks. It's the lobby. It's the gun lobby mm-hmm. that's saying that they don't want it. And so our lawmakers are following the the orders of the the NRA or, or the gun lobby groups instead of the people of Virginia. Well, we could just sit here and just agree with each other for a while. <laughs> um, and that would be fun, I think, for both of us. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to try and move on a little bit, which is I want to say um, there's a little bit of almost trivia about your race, which is that your opponent has established himself as a person um, pushing back on the ERA, which people may not. I feel like there's young people out there that don't even know what that is. That's the Equal Rights Amendment. And if you defeat him, do you think there could be progress made on something that now seems almost like an anachronism, like it's been so long since it's thought of as being relevant? Let me be completely honest with you. Okay. (laughs) It's going to happen with the Democratic majority. It's happening, period. No more anachronism. No, we are going to flip the Virginia General Assembly with your help and elevating this race and and getting people to understand how important it is. And when the Democrats take the majority, women get their seat at the table of equality, period. And like, there's no option there. It's going to be done. I, 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 I see your vision <laughs> and I embrace it. Um, it's such a, I, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but the ERA is one of those things, like I learned about it in history class, (laughs) you know, like, it's just such a crazy thing to me that we're still having to talk about it, that it's not like just, you know, equal rights, you know, what, what, where's the pushback on equal rights, but we don't also, where's the pushback on common sense gun laws that people find ways, um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, uh, it sounds like you have the energy to just keep fighting this fight, no matter how long the campaign is. But we should remind people that it's an off-year election and election day is coming right up. So I guess, you know, people are interested. They can donate money if they're in town. If they're in around your district, they can volunteer. I bet you have a website. Yeah, so it's SheilaForDelegate.com. And, you know, right now we're at the 5149 GOP con- control in the House of Delegates. The election is November 5th, and we can stand up to Trump, and we can defeat the Speaker, and we can do it when people come out and vote. When we vote, we win. And thank you, you know, thank you so much for having me. This is, like, really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're amazing too, and good good luck in your race. Thank you, I appreciate it. On to November fifth, and please, if anyone wants to donate or come out and knock doors with us and make phone calls, any type of volunteer efforts, we will appreciate it. Just go to SheilaForDelegate dot com, and that's S H E I L A for Delegate dot com, and sign up. And that is it for the show. I think Sheila did a wonderful job of letting us know about how we can find out more about her campaign. Jason would like me to remind you that his wife also has a podcast, Professional AF, which just started its second season and is all about women in business and innovation. If you get one thing from today's show, well, I hope you get at least two things. 
one of them being to do what you can to organize for Sheila. But regarding Jason, if there's one thing you get out of that interview, I hope it's this. A person who had the White House on the horizon decided that his mental health was more important than that. If he can weigh his well-being against being the leader of the free world and find his health to be more important, I don't think any of us can put something on the scale that outweighs our recovery. I say this to people about addiction all the time, but I think you could say it about almost any form of getting better. If you wait for a good time to start recovering, you're only going to make sure it's the worst time. So, with more emphasis than usual, please take care of yourself. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.